It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recording. Cool. <laughs> Rolling. <laughs> Rolling. Hello, everyone. Hello. And welcome back to another episode of Nothing Rhymes with Murder. Murder. I'm Georgie. I'm Kate. It's only been, it's been like half an hour since we last recorded. Yeah, it's been uh, however long it takes to ingest one vegan burger and some chips. Yep. We had some food. Yep. And now we're back. Ready and rolling. Hope you enjoyed Israel. Oh, me too. I did for one. <laughs> oh no, the red wine is kicking. Oh no, yeah, we are also on to our Ooh. second, well, second and a half bottle of wine. Yeah, right, because we yeah. already had a bottle and a half. Mm-hmm. So that's happening. We've got full bellies. I'm sleepy. George is jet lagged. I'm just red wine sleepy. So no here excuse, we go. Just filled to the brim with burger <laughs> and wine. Um, Yum. That's not too much preamble, because you know how we are, Mm -hmm. because we told you uh, on other episode. Mm -hmm. So we're still same as, really. Yeah. Had a nice catch up with our friend Kat, who lives with me. Yeah, I was going to say, if not, a little bit better, because we had a nice catch up. Oh, absolutely. So I guess we just, do we just jump right in? I guess, unless, is there anything new that you want to add to our list of feelings? Um, I was listening to, uh, I think it's Denmark. No, maybe it was Bolivia where you were talking about, uh, wanting to get a therapist and finding it really difficult. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that's so like that. Yeah. We all find it very difficult to, it's very, um, what's the word? Vulnerable to be like, I want some help. Yeah. And I need to find the right person. And I was thinking that recently because I also would quite like to go back into therapy and was like, ah, oh, that feels like a big old boulder on my back. Of <laughs> like, this is so scary to try and delve back into this. Yeah. And I know that if I do it, I'm sure I'll be better for it. But then I'm also like, will I be or will they all yeah. betray me like they always do? I know. It feels like a whole nother game of like, you have to like create a new relationship with someone, which is. And I don't want any more friends. Yeah, it, well, we both have this in common of like, I'm filled with friends, thank you, so. <laughs> My roster of friends is filled, thank you. 
<laughs> Thank you for your application. Yeah. We're not taking... It's like, <laughs> can't hold any more friends, let alone a fucking therapist relationship. Jesus. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's also annoying, like, knowing how irrational I'm being. I know it's irrational. I know exact. I don't need therapy to tell you exactly why my brain is wired the way it is in terms of how I feel about therapists. But doesn't change the fact that it's true. Yeah. So I've done no more progress on that. <laughs> no, me neither. I don't really know why I brought it up, to be honest. It's just been playing on my mind. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And I just listened to you talking about it and was like, oh, hashtag relatable, basically. I filled out the questionnaire on BetterHelp and they basically were like, you're too crazy to use BetterHelp. And I was like, okay, well, thank you. That's just like <laughs> absurd that anyone would ever be like, mm, we can't help. Like, why would you be a company even if you just can't offer your basic, <laughs> your basic? Because apparently I'm that broken that no, they're like, whoa. Ridiculous. <laughs> Look at you in comparison to like people in the world. You are not broken. Ain't I? No, you're not. You're just a little bit hurted. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about my business. What? Mm. Anyway. There you go. That was it, really. That's all that was on my mind. I can't think of anything else. Any other business? We discussed it all, really, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Should we just dive in? Ooh, what have we jump got to... into where we're off to? Yeah. This week, we're off to. Monaco. Little old Monaco. Tiny little so Monaco. <laughs> How did you find Monaco? Um, not actually too difficult. Mm. I came across the case I'm doing quite quickly mm -hmm. and there was plenty of info on it. So surprising for such a tiny country. Yeah. But then I guess there's loads of money and where there's money, there's always crime and yeah. evil. So, but it was interesting. I find Monaco such a, yeah, what it would, it, I wonder what it would be like to go to Monaco, but with like not loads of money, like mm. us. Would it be fun or I would we be like... Too. I was like, what would we do if we were there? We got an Airbnb, we're just there for a visit, but we can't spend the millions that it takes to like go to the casino yeah, and have the best night out. We'd find a way. <laughs> oh. We'd oh. get in. We'd find a way. Oh. Oh. Excuse uh -huh. me. Yeah. So, yeah. Monaco was actually surprisingly one of the easier countries i was really dreading it mm -hmm. thinking it would be impossible but actually mm -hmm. it was not mm -hmm. yeah and i found it quite easy because it was a paterda pick so i just chose one of the ones that she had sent in yes and i for some reason couldn't find that email so well i did and it's from sophia so who knows maybe you, the sophia. case i'm covering is one of her recommendations maybe so i don't know but You're i am going first, first yeah so yeah I'm, uh, thank you sophia for this case that i'm going to tell you which is the uh, the story of the Safra murders. Nope. Nope. Nothing. I found my case really quickly, so I didn't. I don't, haven't actually read much about anything else. Fair. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I'm telling you the story of the Safra murders, um, which takes place in teeny tiny Monaco, as we know, the world's second smallest country after the Vatican, because it only has a population of uh, 38,000. That um, is crazy. Crazy. There's more people in London than that. Right? How insane. So teeny tiny. Um, and a reputation as, like, pretty safe and secure. Obviously, it houses, like, a shit ton of billionaires and millionaires. And mm. it's a well-known tax haven. And 
um, has the famous casino Monte Carlo. So yeah. big old tourist attraction place too. So the Safra murder. So Edmund Safra was a Jewish Lebanese banker and a resident of Monaco for 20 years. He had created an empire in New York and Luxembourg and was due to sell his banks to HSBC um, mm-hmm. in early 2000. He was married to a Brazilian woman called Lily and they lived together in his home in Monaco with, at least, uh, I think, eight nurses. Um, the head of them was called Vivian. So Edmund had uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, which is a fun fact, what my Polish nan died from. So one of mm. the truly worst horrifying diseases imaginable. Um, so he needed round-the-clock care. That was him and his family and where he lived in Monaco. So, cut to New York City. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, here we go. Off we go to America again. <laughs> okay, now, okay. I promise we're not there for long, I promise. <laughs> so we're just taking a little quick trip to the Babies and Children's Hospital as part of the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, uh, where a very highly regarded neonatal nurse called Ted Mayer worked. Um, And one day on his shift, he found this really super expensive camera that had been left behind by like a patient or a visitor. So rather than handing it in, he went and got the pictures developed to see if he recognized the people because he was just like a nice guy and was like, I'll find them and give it back to them. Mm -hmm. So he did. And he recognized the woman um, who had recently had twins at the hospital. So he found her like... I guess address which weirdly it's kind of a bit dodge but he found her and he returned the camera to her and the photos and they ended up kind of staying in touch and you know developed a kind of friendship and that couple were called Harry and Laura Slatkin Uh, Laura was pals with Maya's stepdaughter Adriana they told her basically how kind Maya was and um, recommended him as a nurse for Edmund. And Adriana thought it was like, it was a great idea. And they brought him in for an interview and he's like sailed through it and was super qualified. Mm-hmm. And they basically offered him this like insane job of like 600 euro a day to just come and work for Maya. Um, and it was kind of perfect timing because the hospital staff where he was working were just about to go on strike. And he had actually accumulated quite a lot of legal bills in a fight over custody for his, um, for his son from his first marriage. So kind of good timing. Mm-hmm. Like, will I take this dream job? Yes, I will. <laughs> um, he was at first a little bit hesitant and he asked his like second wife, Heidi, um, about it and they kind of like I'm denied about it and they basically asked if Heidi could also come and work for Maya but and they were kind of considering saying yes but then once it was discovered that they had three children they were like no thank you no <laughs> yeah. children here please so they decided that he would move on his own from New York um, I guess to like work and send money back mm. whenever they could because it would be you know he'd just be basically living and working in the building and saving loads of money um, so not forever, but just as long as they could until they, I think their plan was that they basically wanted to retire really young yeah. and not have to work anymore. So apparently Maya didn't get on too well with the other staff um, in the house, especially the chief nurse, um, whose name was Sonia, because he had been given, well, he was quite high up in the hospital, basically, mm-hmm. and then suddenly felt like a bit of a junior again in the house and was like taking orders from people that he felt weren't as advanced medically as he was. Right. But he got on really well with Maya, by all accounts, with him and his wife. Apparently, Safra in general 
didn't get on like amazingly well with like business people but had a real affection for his staff and I guess he was so sick that he kind of depended on them and yeah you know had a good relationship with them his wife apparently wasn't too thrilled with the amount of staff that lived in the house but she too got on really well with some of them and especially with Maya um he had helped her fix a lot of stuff around the house and had got on really well with the extended family as well who had a scented candle business hmm. and the scented candles apparently were all around the home because Safa couldn't always make it to the loo in time because of his illness and I put in brackets hashtag can relate <laughs> <laughs> stomach issues we all get it okay so two nurses um had to basically help him get to the bathroom whenever he needed to um and the bathroom had been designed like a kind of a bit of a bunker right. uh, just in case they were ever under attack so he was a little bit paranoid because of considering how wealthy he was yeah. um He was a little bit paranoid that they would be attacked potentially. And so he kind of built these places like to have somewhere to hide within his home, which was huge, which I feel like as a billionaire is maybe not the craziest idea to be that, that fearful. So on December 3rd, 1999, a fire broke out in Safra's home. And this is the sequence of events that happened, uh, which I got this little bit from Murderpedia. So 4.49am, there were monitor, uh, monitoring station detects a fire alarm from Safra's apartment. 5am, dialing the cell phone Maya gave her, Vivian called head nurse Sonia uh, from Safra's dressing room to ask her to call the police. She informs Cassiano, Sonia, that, uh, sorry, not Sonia, Vivian, that Maya is injured and then five more calls were made uh, during the next 90 minutes. And then at 5.12 a.m., the first police officers arrived in the lobby of the building and police began organising a floor-by-floor search for intruders. At 5.20 a.m., Maya is transported to Princess Grace Hospital for treatment of stab wounds. And at 5.24, passers-by and neighbours begin uh, flooding emergency phone lines with reports of seeing smoke like billowing from the building. Mm. 5.30 a.m., Torrento makes a fourth phone call to Cassiano from the cell phone. She doesn't mention any smoke. Safra um, appears on the phone call calm, but requests police intervention like really quickly. 6.15 a.m., firefighters begin battling the blaze. 6.30 a.m., Torrente, losing consciousness, makes her sixth and final phone call from the cell phone and Safra is heard coughing in the background. And by 7.45am, firefighters gain access to the locked dressing room on the top floor of the penthouse and discover the bodies of Edmund, Safra and Vivian Torrente. And they're dead, so literally just like locked in a bathroom. So really early on, it was said that two hooded men had broken in they had attacked mayor and stabbed him and then left him to die and carried on to um go throughout the house like stealing and kind of Mm. you know he didn't really know what was going on mayor made it up to the wing where edmund sleeps um and told him and vivian to lock themselves in the bathroom while he went out to find help. So he went down, um, he saw the smoke alarm and then was like, okay, I'll set a fire because then that will alert the authorities. Mm. So he did that and then he stumbled down to the ground floor. He told the concierge what had happened before he finally passed out from the stab wounds. Mm -hmm. The concierge thought that he had been shot and so he told that to the police. So they all got out safely and then when the police arrived, they basically wouldn't let the firefighters into the building because they believed that where he had said he's been shot, there might be armed gunmen inside. Right. 
and like the idea of terrorists was floated around and so they wouldn't let anyone in so they had to go in first and check out the building and so by the time it was all kind of cleared and the firefighters were allowed in it was two hours later so of course obviously Edmund and Vivian had suffocated and no gunmen were found. Mm-hmm. So three days later Daniel Serday who was the Attorney General and Chief Prosecutor of Monaco, um, announced that Ted Mayer had confessed to starting the fire, that he had only done it so that he could play the hero and rescue Safra from the burning building and basically win favour with him, Um, that he hadn't meant to kill anyone. He had used, he'd put one of the scented candles in a waste paper bin and let it spread throughout the house. He said there hadn't been any intruders and that his stab wounds which were in his stomach and thigh, were self-inflicted. Serday said to the press that Mayer was, quote, psychologically fragile and under the influence of medication. From this moment on, we can exclude with all certainty all conjectures of any international conspiracy. Mm. So a lot of this I got from this Vanity Fair article that goes into it in quite a lot of detail. And as far as this one goes into detail, they said it was all kind of like, it was a bit too quickly tied up with a neat bow and kind of, you know unstable employee and no one needs to worry Monaco's uh, safe again see. you know don't worry about it and from the beginning like not that many people were convinced and it all seemed a bit too convenient so although he was well respected in the banking world Safra definitely had his enemies he had been accused of money laundering for Colombian drug cartels and his bank and private jet were alleged to have been used to move money and personnel during the Iran Contra scandal and that involvement was then found to have been part of like a massive smear campaign by American Express and he ended up then winning a massive like eight million pound settlement which he then donated to charity Um, he'd also apparently helped out the FBI in the late 90s to expose like Russian Russian mafia's money laundering operations Mm -hmm. so you know, that might have contributed to him feeling so unsafe (laughs) in his own home. And he had like lots of stuff going on. And that's like the other weird thing about the fire is that he had like all of the latest surveillance because he was so paranoid Mm -hmm. and so much security detail and like armed guards all over the place. And none of them were on duty the night of the fire, which seems really strange. And it's and like the article just says, you know, they'd all just been discharged to another property for the night, which seems really weird. So the writer of this Vanity Fair article ended up meeting up with Maya's wife, whose name was Heidi, and she was also a nurse and was having to work like a shit ton more since Ted was arrested, basically, to support their family in New York. So she had found out about the fire from her sister, who'd seen it on the on the TV, and the company that looked after the nurses and the guards in Safra's house got in touch and like told them what had happened, and they ended up flying Heidi and her brother out to Monte Carlo after the fire, and it had all kind of been described as like, Ted's this hero, and we're flying you out so that you could meet him in hospital and um he'd been stabbed trying to save Edmund and all this so she was just like oh my god my husband's like this hero that's you know they're flying me out paying Uh for all my stuff to like go and meet him and by the time she flew in she was then told that Ted had actually been arrested and she was being taken to the police station not the hospital and Heidi had the records from the hospital that show that Ted hadn't been high or drunk the night of the fire, contradictory to what the um, Daniel Serday had stated to the press. She believed that his confession had been coerced and she said that he basically had said that he set the fire in the bin to get the alarm to go off when the intruders came in. And Heidi has a letter from Sue Kelly, who is a member of the US House of Representatives from New York, that was written to Prince Rainier III, which basically said, quote, 
We believe that the international human rights and civil liberties of this American citizen and his family have clearly been violated after being bound hand and foot, catheterized, isolated, interrogated and kept awake for three days. Ted Mayer was forced to sign a confession written in French with no English translation. Holy shit. His wife, Heidi, was also interrogated for several days and kept under police surveillance. She was grabbed off the street, thrown into a car by three unknown people wearing black and taken to her hotel where her room and luggage were ransacked and her her passport was taken. Ted was then shown his wife's passport and threatened that she would not be able to return to their three children unless he signed the document confessing to the crime. Bloody hell. So dodgy. So dodgy. <laughs> okay, so cut two. Um, a funeral was held for Edmund and a few memorial services too, which is where like loads of gossip was spreading. There were really strained relationships between Lily and Edmund's brothers. Apparently they hated her for like in their minds, keeping Edmund locked away, especially the sicker that he got. Although by all accounts, that seemed very much like Edmund's decision is that he just wanted to be alone with like the nurses in his house and with his wife. They also were like, basically like she's too old to bear children and like, we don't trust her as a human, so we just don't want you to be around her as, as a wife <laughs> mm. in general. Uh, and, like, her ex completed suicide. Um, or did she kill him and inherit his <laughs> fortune? They were just, like, super suspicious of her. Which also, by the way, turns out, no. Like, the investigation that took place afterwards that her husband died, like, confirmed that he hadn't completed suicide. But, yeah, so they basically convinced Edmund not to marry her, like, in the beginning, back when they first, like, knew about her. Um, so that was the start of their, like, relationship with each other that didn't go so well. Oh, and then, I <laughs> side note, fun fact. The youngest brother, who was called Joseph, bought the gherkin in 2014 for <laughs> just a casual £700 million. Pounds. Oh, my God. That's, that's when this so came up in the article. Money. I was like, what? Imagine having that much money. Did you see the person, the UK person? Well, we don't know who it is, but someone in the UK won the Euro Millions. Oh, my God, how much? Something like 140-something million pounds or something insane like that or either won the lottery or whatever one person won the entire jackpot wow that's insane it's definitely 140 something yeah what are they gonna do with it i don't know give me some maybe they're gonna buy the world the whole world you just think give just give me some just give it to everyone just give me like a mil Mm -hmm. or two Give me five mil. <laughs> Look literally... how quickly I got greedy. A yeah. mil. Uh, well, two. Maybe I could do mm. with two. Five. <laughs> they could literally just walk down the street and give a mil to anyone and not even notice it. Oh, man. They could, they could change the life of like a homeless person. Yeah. Oh, here's a... Oh, just take ten grand. Ugh. I won't notice it. Just have it. That's what I hate about money. All the billionaires in the world could save the world. Yeah, they <laughs> If they pulled could. their resources. Yeah, if they all... Oh my god, they actually could. I remember re or oh, it was I think it was on Explained on Netflix and saying say like the seven richest billionaires in the world, if you cu- accumulate their wealth, they end up they have they would if the sorry, I'm explaining something badly. <laughs> the example they gave was like if you accumulated the seven richest people in the world's wealth mm. as like into a country, they'd be in like the top ten richest countries in the world. Oh seven god. single people yeah. have more money. Ugh, than most of the countries in the world. So depressing. <laughs> Imagine being one of those people and reading that and being like, "What is my life?" There's that. Um, I haven't watched it, yet, but I really wanted that documentary about Bill Gates inside the mind of Bill Gates. Mm. I want to get in that mind. It's all about that money. But also, I'd probably be like, "This mind is quite scary. I'm yeah. going to leave now." 
I just want a bit more money, though. Yeah, me you too. know, I don't want loads of money. That's the but thing. I want some of it. I want some money. Yeah. Okay, so badass Lily ended up marrying someone else and divorcing him, which gave Edmund a kick up the butt to uh, marry her, and then they end up getting married in 1976. So, rumors basically were flying around of who might have been involved and who might have done it and how this whole thing might have happened. And so, this is where the idea of two fires being started that night had started and allegedly an incendiary object I love that word by the way incendiary incendiary object had been thrown into the penthouse but by who? (laughs) no one knows so the trial begins Mayer basically decides that his tactic will be to go along with the false confession that he had made Uh so he tells the court that he was scared that he would lose his job as the head nurse hated him and had helped get rid of like loads of other employees so was Mm -hmm. known as this kind of like don't get in her way because she will get chucked out of the house he figured that he would basically ingratiate himself with Safra and would be rewarded with enough money to retire on if he wanted to so (laughs) he just kind of went back to the whole like yeah like I'll just I'll just start a tiny fire and I'll rescue him <laughs> and like then I'll be held as a hero. No right. big deal, guys. Uh-huh. So a quote from his defense was he did not intend to kill Mr. Safra. He just wanted Mr. Safra to appreciate him more. He loved Mr. Safra. This was the best job of his life. In December 2002, Mayer was convicted in the arson deaths of Edmund Safra and Vivian Torrente and charged to 10 years in prison. He apologized. Only 10 years. Yeah. Only 10 years. He apologised and he said that he loved Zafra. He said that he was the best employer he had ever had. Then, less than two months after his sentencing, Mayer and his cellmate that he'd been with for a while had just decided to <laughs> plot to break out of the prison together, which they did. Mm-hmm. Which, side note, was kind of like, you know, when you were telling the story of insane prisons. Yeah. <laughs> It was, like, apparently a stunning, like, it's like Monaco. So it's, like, sea views. And, like, the breakfast was, like, avocado vinaigrette. (laughs) (laughs) Just, like, crazy beautiful. But, yeah, he, like, so they decided to escape together. And they basically broke through the bars from the windows um, on their cell and tied a load of duvets together. So literally, like, a home alone prison escape. (laughs) Mayer even said that he had walked past and said good evening to at least three <laughs> police officers as he went, as he evening. broke out. <laughs> good evening, sir. Oh, good evening, sir. Good evening. <laughs> good day to you. <laughs> he made it Hard all work, the way. Hardly working, am I right? Oh. <laughs> ah, you're right, Bob. <laughs> um, he made it all the way to Nice where he booked a hotel room. He phoned his wife and his sister, basically, like, asking them for to send... to wire him money so that he could pay for the whole thing mm-hmm. um, and to, like, help him out in general. So, But his wife was, like, furious at him. She refused to help him, and she ended up alerting the authorities. But although his sister was like, yeah, sure, I'll pay for the room. Get out of there. So she helped him <laughs> escape. He then was caught again like seven hours later by French officials and sent back to Monaco to stand trial again. He ended up getting like an additional nine months tacked on to his sentence mm-hmm. um, for the escape. And he was released 
uh, eventually in October 2007, which I guess was because he had been imprisoned for two years before the trial even began. So that was kind of, it was all rounded up on his sentence and returned to the US. He then was just out and basically gave a load of interviews, a lot of which you can watch. And I'll post the like videos that I was watching him on, confirming his original story and his innocence and massively that his confession was coerced. And to this day, he maintains his innocence. That's kind of where the story wraps up. So there was not really any conclusion of like what the hell happened that night. Like if he was innocent and he started the fire as like a, you know, kind of like to alert the authorities and as a distraction, like there's no nothing has been kind of looked into of like who the fuck were the people then that broke in and stabbed him and were like either robbing the place or like had actually gone after Safra. There was nothing really looked into about that. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where it wraps up. It's like, weird. so what happened yeah. and by who? Question mark? Crazy is that story. And the thing that the, the whatever the person from the House of Representatives was it? The American person who gave who was like oh he was like tied up and catheterized and yes and like sleep deprived yeah what how fucking crazy and you don't and you wouldn't like they wouldn't issue something like that yeah lightly right no exactly the fuck yeah and it was like apparently literally his wife was like left america being like oh my god he's being treated as a hero and i'm gonna like meet him and yeah you know he's gonna be in hospital and he like just managed to survive and he was protecting his employer to literally landing in Monaco and then being like, we're taking you to prison because your husband is a fucking like, he started this whole thing and like is now being arrested. And Banana splits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is great. So, Bloody hell. There you go. All right. So my first hotspot is... The Oceanographic Museum. Uh, So, the Musée Oceanographique of Monaco is one of the largest scientific institutions dedicated to the study of the ocean. In its aquariums are around 6,000 species of sea creatures, and it also holds an incredible array of specimens collected during the 20th century exploration. In 2011, the museum commissioned artist Mark Dion to create a new arrangement of the collection in the tradition of a cabinet of curiosity. Drawing from the archives, Dion resurrected many forgotten pieces of the vast collection founded by Prince Albert I, thematically arranged in a 10-foot-high display. Between the polar bear, the antique diving suit and the giant corals, Mark Dion's marine wunderkammer is spectacular in size and variety. A breathtaking display that will arouse your thirst for science, which it mm. truly, truly does. Um, yeah, and then the only other one I could think of was to say, go to the casino. <laughs> I mean, you have to talk <laughs> about gotta it. You've got to go to the casino in Monaco, you know? All right, so the Monte Carlo in Monaco. Casinos have been shaping Monaco and making it legendary since 1863. Today, Monaco remains the finest and most luxurious destination of all for high rollers and the general public alike, because its casinos are constantly reinventing themselves, preserving tradition, yet always innovating. The ultimate way to discover Monaco, it all begins in the legendary Place de Casino. I probably said that wrong. The vibrant, glamorous, beating heart of the principality. The square is home to the Casino de Monte Carlo, the epitome of luxury. The slot machine paradise of the Casino Café de Paris, renowned for its innovation, is merely steps away. 
The nearby Sun Casino is Monaco's Little Vegas, while the Monte Carlo Bay uh, Monte Carlo Bay Casino sits inside an exclusive resort. You know, I could keep going on and on and on, but this is basically just describing the casino in lots of detail. But check out the website for the Monte Carlo. <laughs> I was actually, as I was um, researching this, I was imagining us in the casino together and how much fun we would have going <laughs> away and being in a casino, being all like dressed up and being like, ah, good day, sir, with our like cocktails and like <laughs> fake money. <laughs> I put it all on black and this is a two pound all coin on, I said all on black <laughs> Yahtzee nope again madam no yes Mr. Joey uh, what's it happen at me for tappy tap tap Oh, excuse you. Excuse you, sir. Yeah, that was my foray to Monaco. Very well done. Thank you. Thanking you, madame. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about the murder of Helen Pastor. Helene Pastor was born in 1937 and grew up in Monaco with her two brothers, Michelle and Victor. Uh, Her family was pretty infamous in Monaco. Um, She was the senior surviving member of what is, in effect, Monaco's second dynasty after the ruling Grimaldis. So the Pastor's origin story is fairly humble. So her grandfather, John John Baptiste, was a stonemason from Liguria who arrived in Monte Carlo as a young man in the 1880s. He initially made a good living just as a public works contractor, but then in 1936, he was commissioned by Prince Louis II to build the principality's first football stadium, which would be the beginning of a fruitful and long-standing relationship between the two families. Hmm. So this led to kind of the beginnings of a bit of a... Mm, uh, what's the word? Like property empire... Um, one that was carried on by his son. So after World War II, Jean-Baptiste's son, Gildo, amassed loads of waterfront land quite cheaply. And then in the 1950s, began building apartment blocks, sort of along, like with harbour views, basically. And that's what forms the modern cityscape of Monte Carlo. The family was famous for being quite conservative in their business methods and averse to debt, and were eventually reckoned to own outright more than 3,000 apartments, which equates to about 15% of Monaco's entire housing stock, loosely valued at 20 billion euros. Oof. That's fake money. That doesn't exist. <laughs> That's too much money for one family. So on Gildo's death in 1990, the empire... The property empire was divided between his three children, Victor, Michelle, and Helene, which is actually goes against Ligurian tradition, which normally would mean that the daughters weren't allowed to inherit, but um, Gildo left part of his fortune to his daughter. So Victor, Pastor, was kept a relatively low profile. The other brother, Michelle, was apparently more flamboyant. He was a noted art collector, dubbed Le Boss de Monaco, and they all continue to develop new properties and inquire more like land and things like that. And Helene as well quietly managed her portfolio of half a dozen prestigious addresses along the avenues Princess Grace and Grand Britannia. Mm. 
She was known for her elegant but reticent style and taciturn manner. She always, uh, she preferred to kind of dress in dark, modest suits, although they were all Chanel. Mm. Um, She avoided like big social occasions, but could often be spotted walking a dog without a bodyguard and spent most of her time in her office, which was just decorated with photographs of her father and families and things like that. She married twice, and with her first husband, she had a daughter, Sylvia Pastorch, who was born in 1961. And then she married a guy called Claude Palanca, who was a, deten- a dentist, and they had a son named after her father, Gildo Palanca Pastor. This was in 1967. So in an article on this case from Bloomberg, Max Ryerson, who was an entrepreneur who lived in Monaco for 12 years and run Club 5000, an online private members club for high net worth individuals, Grace, um, is quoted as saying... It's almost impossible to try and do anything Monaco without coming into some kind of contact with the family. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a very nice apartment, you'll need to rent from the pastors. They're a part of life. So, shortly after 7 o'clock on the 6th of May 2014, as Helen Pastor left La Hache Hospital in Nice, her and her chauffeur, Mohamed Darouch, were ambushed. She had been visiting her son Gildo, who had suffered a stroke, uh, when on her exit, a gunman opened fire with a sawn-off shotgun, killing Helen in the chest, neck and jaw, and another shot hit her driver, Mohammed, in the heart and abdomen. Only her beloved snow-white Pyrenean shepherd Belle was left unharmed. Oh. The papa was safe. Goodness, thank God. So as the gunman fled with an accomplice to Marseille, the victims were rushed to the intensive care unit at Nice's St. Roche Hospital. Mohammed, her chauffeur, died of his injuries four days later. Helen fell into a coma but would eventually succumb to her wounds on the 21st of May, but not before waking up and in the days before her death. Well, some outlets report that she had no idea who wanted to attack or who even had any reason to. But then some outlets also said that she was able to give investigators a description of her attackers and that she had actually intended to provide further evidence. And she's quoted as saying in those articles, I'm afraid I want to see you again because I have more to tell. In an article in the French weekly L'Express, Frédéric Laurent, who is a Monaco historian, is quoted as saying, There was real astonishment. She was an extremely discreet individual, and the Pastor family aspired to be completely normal business people. They're the richest family in the principality, but their business affairs were perfectly normal. So despite this, the murder was initially linked to organised crime, with mm. police suspecting two of Italy's most notorious crime syndicates, the Ndrangheta and the Camorra. Both of these gangs were at the time said to be trying to build property portfolios on the French Riviera as they aimed to expand their field of operation. Other people thought it might be a warning shot from Russian President Vladimir Putin to US President oh. Barack Obama, who in retaliation for Putin's uh, like involvement in, U- in the Ukraine had imposed sanctions and frozen the bank accounts of several wealthy Russians, many of whom have accounts in Monaco banks. Um, some other people thought it might be a professional hit ordered by one of Helen's powerful tenants, some who had clashed with her like in, in the terms of their rentals. Because bear in mind, the properties that she ran, you know, are massive luxury apartments, so the people who are renting them are like millionaires and billionaires. Right, yeah. <laughs> but despite all of these suspicions, in the weeks that followed, police traced some 3.5 million phone calls and pieced together key evidence, including closed-circuit television footage and DNA found on a soap bottle in the gunman's hotel room that led to, to them making several arrests. They concluded that the plot had originated with Helen's daughter Sylvia's longtime living partner, uh, Wojciech Janowski. So... 
they deduced that he had enlisted his fitness coach, Pascal Dariach, who in turn then used his brother-in-law, Abdelkader Belkatir, who then found two contract killers <laughs> called Sami Aid Ahmed and Oof. Al-Khair Hamadi in a contract that was worth 140,000 euros. And eventually, in total, 10 different suspects were brought to trial. So Janowski initially confessed after his arrest, but very quickly recanted. His lawyer, Eric Campana, said he had withdrawn statements made while in custody because he, quote, misunderstood the meanings of the terms used by police. Mm. He also said the police had been speaking in French, and Mr. Janowski, oh. quote, does not understand all the nuances of our language. Well, what does that sound familiar? <laughs> that sounds slightly familiar. Um, so the lawyer said that they would be demanding that an appeal court nullify his client's detention because he did not have access to a lawyer or interpreter during his 96 hours in custody. Mm-hmm. So the investigating magistrate alleged that Mr. Janowski's businesses were on the verge of collapse and he had accumulated colossal debts from bad investments, despite the fact that he fully had access to Sylvia Pastor's monthly allowance of 500,000 euros, which was put in place by her mother, Helen. That equates to £445,000 a month. A month. A month. That's her her pocket money. That's crazy. Um, That's too much for any one human. (laughs) Police concluded that uh, Janowski may have become alarmed when Sylvia was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2012, fearing that he'd be left with nothing if she died because they weren't married. They'd been together for like 28 years and they had a daughter, but they never married. Mm -hmm. So Sylvia was initially questioned by the police, but was very quickly ruled out of the inquiry. And, you know, the upside is she eventually beat her cancer and she did survive. Mm -hmm. So Helen seems to have never quite trusted Janowski She's the kind of person that she personally vetted all of the millionaire and billionaire tenants of her properties. And so she hired a private investigator called Patrick Boffer to check out the background of Janaski and his claims of wealth. Because that was one of the things where he kind of, when he entered the scene, showed, like portrayed himself as a wealthy guy and he came from money and he supposedly like went to Cambridge and all mm-hmm. of this stuff. So what Patrick Boffer discovered is that he'd actually been almost penniless when he arrived in Monaco. He's the opposite of everything. <laughs> he lied about being a Cambridge graduate. Oh, None of it was true. Shocking, shocking. <laughs> um, so Boffer told The Telegraph, quote, Sylvia told her mother that everything I found out about him was a pack of lies. It was very upsetting for Helen. She phoned me in tears. So at the beginning of the trial, Janowski told the court he would answer all questions and when formally accused of the involvement in Helen's killing, uh, Janowski said, quote, I am innocent. I've committed no crime. That's all. Thank you. Thank <laughs> oh. you. So he continued to maintain his innocence throughout the two weeks of the trial, remaining pretty defiant under all the questioning. And in fact, at one point, dared the prosecution to, quote, show me the proof. <laughs> oh, so. Um, but then, in a surprising turn of events that nobody saw coming, uh, two weeks into the trial, Janowski's lawyer announced to the shocked court that his client was, quote, guilty of ordering Helene Pastor's murder. Quote, these words which you wanted to hear from him come from my mouth. He tried to say these words. He wanted to say them, but he couldn't. And wow. apparently Janowski stood next to him, like, basically tears flowing down his eyes while his lawyer basically confessed on his behalf. Oh, my God. So he told the court that Janowski had wanted to kill Helen because of the quote emotional abuse of her daughter which he said was destroying her and that he had not ordered the two hitmen to kill her chauffeur as well but that claim is contradicted by his former personal trainer Pascal who uh, is the one he initially approached to 
get rid of Helene. Right. He claimed that he was ordered to find the two killers and have them murder the chauffeur and steal Helene's purse to try and make it look like a robbery. He was reported as saying, quote, Janowski tricked me. He said his mother-in-law was a monster. Apparently, Janowski said to him, this cannot go on. Sylvia's illness has deteriorated. We have to get rid of the old woman. Can you help me? Mm. He also claimed that Janowski plied him with gifts and free holidays to try and gain leverage over him. And eventually he gave in, asking his brother-in-law, Abdel Kader Belkatir, um, who lived in nearby Marseille, and asked him to help him find someone for a, quote, big job. So another thing that came to light during the trial was that it was revealed that after her diagnosis, Sylvia had made her daughters the sole heirs to her fortune in the mistaken belief that Janowski was independently wealthy, so he didn't need to inherit anything from her. Because he had been showing her with expensive gifts, he bought her a vintage Fiat, he bought her a yacht but actually in reality both were casual both were purchased with her money he never owned any of it and he actually never paid the insurance on the car side note (laughs) both the defense and prosecutions agreed that janowski was status hungry quote janowski has an existential need for recognition said the prosecutor he was ill accepted in monaco and in the pastor family that tormented him over the years he developed a tenacious hatred for his Mm mother-in-law janowski's lawyer told the jury quote he was born in cop in communist Stalinist Poland, he saw his mother go to prison. His father's property was confiscated, and the Pastor family treated him like a loser. So yes, he invented diplomas for himself. Haven't any of us ever lied? Janowski also claimed that police had done, quote, everything to me but tear out my fingernails to obtain his initial confession. And yeah, and then the prosecutors basically were like, uh, no, and showed the court the video of the confession that had taken place, and that was really the turning point of the trial. In the video, you can see uh, him in a very polite exchange with the police officers uh, say, quote, yes, madame, I asked him, as in the personal trainer, if he could resolve the problem with my mother-in-law. He also claimed in it that the motive was love, and quote, my wife's mother mistreated her every day. From the day I met her, I had to put Sylvia back together. Her mother and her brother Gildo were vipers, and they wanted to destroy her. Prosecutor Cortez noted, Quote, it was with the money of his companion, that is to say with the victim's money, so his Sylvia's money, which is actually Helen's money, mm-hmm. <laughs> that Janowski paid the killers. It doesn't get more ignominious than that. But yeah, basically saying he used Helen's own money to, put out, to pay for the hit on herself. Yeah. Ugh. So eventually Janowski, as well as Sami Ait Ahmed and al Hayr Hamadi, were sentenced to life in prison. Pascal Doriak was sentenced to 30 years. Helen's son, Gildo, called the life imprisonment a, quote, exemplary sentence. He's quoted as saying, telling AFP that I was also convinced of of Janowski's guilt, and he was glad that the jury had not been duped by the tearful confession at the last moment. Mm. And that's the story of the murder of Helen Pastor. Oh, my God. Short, but a little crazy. A little. Cray, cray. Cray, cray. Holy shit. Paying people to moider. Yeah. You just got to not do it. With someone else's money. Yeah. Ugh. Ick. Imagine having been with someone for 28 years, having a kid with them, and then realising that everything they told told you about themselves isn't true. Also, that's... Like, imagine being with someone who's done that to you for, like, five years. You'd be yeah. like, I'll never trust again. 28 years. Yeah. That's, like, a whole lifetime. And he had your mother killed. <laughs> Ugh. Devastating. There you have it. 
Sweetie, you're making this really hard to think the best of people in the world. <laughs> well, I think if you're trying to get that from the podcast, we may have pick and, picked the wrong subject matter. You're picking the wrong subject. picking the wrong subject matter. You picked the wrong subject matter. Correct. Hatchbats. I do got some heart stats for Yay. you. Give me one sec. Um, the first one is the Museum of Prehistoric Anthropology. Ooh, lovely. The Museum of Prehistoric, Prehistoric Anthropology was founded by Prince Albert I in 1902 to conserve traces of early humankind exhumed in the Principality and neighbouring regions. Mm. The numerous collections which have been brought together in the museum over more than a century represent the various phases of regional prehistory and protohistory. The majority of the archaeological and paleontological exhibits come from the Principality and neighbouring areas, which are France and Italy. Following a long series of excavations in the Grimaldi Caves, so 1895 to 1902, which were financed by Prince Albert I himself, it became necessary and indispensable to have a single place where all of the items found could be kept in order to preserve and exhibit them. So it's it's been it's the location of the museum has changed a few times, and I believe currently. Um, so in 1960, it was moved to a new building in the middle of the exotic gardens, mm. um, and was the new home was designed by an architect called Louis Rouet. The collections on display enable visitors to trace the major steps in the evolution of humanity through the various glacial and interglacial periods. They teach us that over a million years ago, the French Riviera was already a favoured habitat for ancient ancestors. Mm. One of the most exceptional examples. Uh, exceptional specimens that they have is the skeleton of a woolly mammoth oh which cool. was brought there in 2014 it was excavated in siberia 1000 kilometers east of the lena river and it took several expeditions spanning from 1991 to 2003 to collect the numerous skeletal remains from the permafrost using the various remains mounted on a metallic structure it's been possible to recreate an adult proboscidean five meters long 3.3 thir- 3.3 3.3 meters high, 2.20 meters high. high. <laughs> what am I reading this? Um, uh, yeah, so very cool museum. Look. Very good, very good. I'm a skeleton. Oh my god, Bracky. I'm a sir, a bit scary. I, uh, the newest um, Jurassic Parks that we were watching had uh, lots of museums with dinosaur bones in them and dinosaurs hiding behind them to then be like <laughs> as people are walking past it was very very scary my second hat spot mm-hmm. is the monaco national museum automatons and dolls of yesteryear oh bracket. um <laughs> thousands of costumed dolls fill one of the world's no, creepiest museums no i'm good sorry we don't need here anymore i think you do well, i don't think we do oh no oh never mind Sorry, Monaco just read on the website said sorry, Monaco <laughs> National Museum is permanently closed. Because it's too fucking creepy. <laughs> Never mind. I wanted oh, to well. tell you about the creepy doll museum. I have a backup one. Oh, I hope it's not about dolls. It's not. Okay. But it's boring. <laughs> the Museum of Stamps and Coins. Well, just end it there. <laughs> No, you're going to hear about museums of stamps and coins. 
The Museum of Contemporary Design houses rare stamps depicting the Principality's postal history. And let me guess, some coins? <laughs> as well as all the documents which have been used in the stamp printing process. Oh, Ooh, yes, from me. the first oh, Charles me. III stamp in 1885, famously, mm. Mm. <laughs> to the present day. Oh, tell me more. Um, the Museum of Philately, is, mm. the, is that the term? Maybe. <laughs> For stamps? Fili-tilly. And coinage. It's open from 10am to 5pm daily. Oh. Um, it also sells currently available stamps and coins <laughs> issued by the Principality. Aren't you lucky? Oh my um, God. So thrilling. It was established by the Sovereign sovereign Ordinance of Prince Rainier III. Ah, he was in my story. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in December 1905, it was opened to the public in January 1996 and celebrated its 20th anniversary in 2016. Every two years, the museum hosts the International Monocophil Exhibition, which attracts the most prestigious philatelists, that must mm. be the term for stamp mm-hmm. collectors, from around the world. The first Monogasque... Monogasque? Is that what it, what you're called if you're from Monaco? Monogasque. first Monogasque stamps were issued by Prince Charles III in 1885. Back then, the Principality was uh, obviously a member of the Universal Postal Union (laughs) and issued stamps under the Convention Concerning the Customs Union Neighbourly Relations. Oh my god, (laughs) thrilling! (laughs) Which concluded in France on 9th November 1865, pursuant to the Treaty of the 2nd of February 1861. (laughs) You have to start with this information. (laughs) <laughs> Please let it be over. It's not over. I haven't talked about coins. The first <laughs> Monegasque coins were issued in January 1640 by Prince Honoré II, with reference to the new system introduced by the Duke of Savoy. In October 1643, Louis the Fourth granted Honoré II the right to freely. The right to freely circulate his gold and silver coins in France, do you know? On the condition that they were aligned to the corresponding French coins. Very important, that. This rule was extended in 1865 to cover all Monegasque coins. Can you believe it? Until the introduction of the euro on the 1st of January 2001. Today, Monegasque euros circulate throughout the eurozone and the Principality has an annual quota under the same conditions as all other member countries of the zone. Can you believe that? The museum is known as a first-rate cultural institution and also a commercial operation. Its shops sell Monegasque stamps and coins as well as other related products such as books, enamel scarves, and so on. Also, a mail order service has been set up. Catalogues available from the museum. And there you go, that's my foray to Monaco. Oh my god, Bracky. <laughs> I think that's literally the longest hotspot that's ever been read to anyone ever. I don't know why I feel good about punishing you all by making you listen to that. <laughs> Because you were so mad about the Creepy Doll Museum being closed. I was so excited about a Creepy yeah, Doll Museum. Yeah, you were so mad that it was closed. I want to tell them about it, but it's closed. Fine. <laughs> I'll punish them all. <laughs> oh, you'll see. Oh, y'all see. Y'all all see. So, yeah. Well, that was awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we have paternalists who are philatelists. Mm. Philatelists. Fair enough. That's true. So, I'm sorry, anyone that's know. a philatelist. A fl- and fl- also fl- coined, <laughs> you know. And also a coin Two for one. Um, there we go. Oh, Sorry, God, guys. So long. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll make it up to you guys by 
talking about nice things. Can you try and find uh, a coin thing in each country now? Yeah, I'm going to become a philatelist. Yeah, you will. Um, And every episode will be like, and now to coins. (laughs) Hashtag coin corner. Coin corner with Georgie. (laughs) This week's coin is the (laughs) blah coin from 18 blah from the country of blah. Uh, Famously. (laughs) And do you know? (laughs) One might suspect, but in fact, intriguingly, (laughs) not as round as the pound. (laughs) Ugh. Uh, but still considered legal tender. Oh my god, you have to stop. <laughs> Just got to stop. <laughs> all right, all right, come on. All right. Let's rein it in. Rein it um, in. Let's go to some <laughs> reviews. <laughs> this will be much more interesting then. Coins, or will it? We'll find okay. out. Shout in out. Coin corner with Georgie. <laughs> coin and review corner with Georgie. Um, so, shout out to Amanda Liz from New Zealand. Oh, hi. Kia ora. Yeah. Um, five stars. Too good. As an absolute true crime addict, I can't believe it's taken me this long to find you. <laughs> Loving everything about what you're doing and really appreciate how you how real you keep it. Hilarious chemistry and epic storytelling. You'll find me over here binging. Thanks. Aw. Thank you very much, Thank Amanda. You. I can believe how long it's taken you to find us. <laughs> we are... <laughs> Quite the hidden podcast. Yeah, for some reason. So. <laughs> Why don't nobody know about us? <laughs> oh, shout out to Eve, Eve on Instagram. Yeah. Eve, E-V-E-A-E-R. It's like how we say um, Uber. 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 Um, this message is actually just uh, addressed to you. Oh. <laughs> it says, Madam. to be fair, it's a very nice message. Hi, Kate. I just wanted to say about two minutes before I started your new episode tonight, I had to tell my husband that my stomach had suddenly started hurting for the millionth time. Oh. Chronic issues of any kind, serious suck. And I'm so sorry to hear you are suffering too. So I just wanted to say you are far from alone. Heart emoji. Love the show and congrats on the upcoming crime con. Two champagne emojis. Oh, Bracky, thank you so much. That's so sweet. And I also was meant to remember um, another Bracky Paterda shouted out tummy issues too um i will find you for next time was and it on twitter yes it was on twitter you you it. sent me actually on our whatsapp because you were uh, like look and i was like i know i'm too sad to respond <laughs> <laughs> but i am seeing them i'm sorry i didn't respond i was in a the depths of despair as i'm sure you know of tummy <laughs> issues <laughs> um also shout out to conrad343 Hey team, I'm a huge fan from New Zealand. I'm a 20-year-old man, my man, who mows lawns for a living, so not really a target audience, I assume. I love the pod. Keep up the great work. You're all our targets. Yeah, everyone is. Put you all in our crosshairs. We're looking at you. Um, thanks very much. Thank you. Um, what is my... My man. Also, shout out to Pan... Pantime Lord 13 on Instagram. I don't know if this will go in an episode, but I just wanted to say I really love your podcast and I'm almost caught up, which makes me sad because what? Because that means I'll have to wait a week between each episode. Two weeks, actually. Two weeks, actually, (laughs) Saz. But thank you for listening. (laughs) We love you. All right. So on to the emails. Um, First one is from Louisa. The subject line is, hey, my gals, turns out I sent my email to the wrong address. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) And it just says, hi, Joey. And then in small letters, and also Kate and George. (laughs) 
I tried to send this email to you guys about six months earlier and finally realized that either A, you guys were ignoring it, or B, I'd sent it to the wrong email. I'll choose for my own sanity to believe it's the latter. I've tried a few times to review you guys on iTunes or send you an email, but always, uh, no, but it's always after I've listened to a few episodes uh, of the podcast and enthusiastically drunk along with you. <laughs> so either you've got, <laughs> you've got a bunch of identical embarrassing emails or none of them. Yikes. <laughs> just make you feel better it's none of them it's none of them this is the first we've heard from you (laughs) i just want to say that i've been listening to you guys for the past 18 months or so i'm a massive true crime nerd and have worked my way through the backlog of many of the old favorites mfm generation y wine and crime insight slash crime lines etc and we'll see while i love all of them none of them quite touched my heart like your (laughs) like your podcast did I found NRWM during a rough period of my life, uh, and then in brackets, broke up with my girlfriend, med school stress plus anxiety slash bulimia equals super fun combo. Mm. And I honestly can say that your podcast played a massive role in keeping me sane. You were in my ears in my lunch breaks on my way to psychology appointments and uh, coming home from hospital placements and making me laugh while I felt like crying. Both of you are very open about talking about... Uh, uh, sorry, about taking care of mental as well as physical health. And it's something I really appreciate. In addition to that, your friendship feels so refreshing and genuine. <laughs> oh, sorry. It feels so refreshing and genuinely pops out through the audio. This sounds super cheesy, but you make the listener feel included in your conversation. In brackets, <laughs> how? I don't know, but it works. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you always have such interesting cases. In brackets, got sick about hearing about Ted Bundy a billion times, <laughs> if you can imagine. Oh, God, same. The travel hotspots uh, always help to flesh out the world around the case, which is unique and interesting, in brackets. Also means I stopped recognising uh, places and cities purely by crimes I've heard. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> good. That is our aim. Uh, so good. Anyway, apparently I ramble just as much as <laughs> when sober, so I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Love you guys and keep up the good work. Uh, Oz is a good place for wine, uh, rackets, and crime, question mark. <laughs> also, we have some tourist hotspots as well or something. Mostly good alcohol, though. <laughs> know that I'll be pouring a glass, brackets, cough, bottle, cough, of bubbly when I see your next episode out. Love, Lou. Oh, Lou, that is the nicest email. So nice. That's made me so happy. So lovely. And I know there's a lot of good alcohol in Australia, don't you worry. Yeah, I've made my way through plenty of it in my travels. <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. I drank the cheapest crap. I <laughs> did say you that. drink Foster's? <laughs> I drank Goon, that boxed oh, wine. Delicious. I did so, oh, so, oh, such a backpacker wine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, so the next email is from Rachel. Uh, Just, I'm not going to read out the subject line because it might be a case suggestion for future episodes, so (laughs) shush. Um, But she says, hi, Georgie, hi, Kate, and hi, Joey. Good. Correct. I am Rachel, (laughs) and I live in Scarborough. This is Scarborough. (laughs) This is Scarborough. I discovered your podcast because YouTuber Georgia Marie Uh, recommended you in a video and I've been catching up on your episodes ever since you are now one of my go-to podcasts when I'm in need of a murder story and a brackets small and respectful giggle to go alongside it Uh, brackets I hasten to add at this point that I mostly listen to you while on my lunch break at work who needs to be social and talk to co-workers when you could listen to a murder case oh my god I feel you I feel that deep in my soul quite Anyway, 99% of the cases I know are either American or in the UK, which is one of the reasons I like you guys so much. You shed light on cases I've never heard before. That being said, the one foreign case I do know is from... Case Uh, Suggestion. Case Suggestion. Exactly. 
Anyway, I've rambled on for long enough. Rachel. P.S. I was taught about whether to include summaries of the cases, but I feel like I'd just be rambling. However, here are the two YouTube videos that introduced me to the cases to belong with. I love that she's doing our homework for us. That is so great. Thank Thank you you so much, Rachel. That's lovely. Um, Lovely. I am so curious about this world of true crime YouTubers. I know. I know nothing about. We know nothing about it. I feel like that's the second person who's mentioned this YouTuber. Yeah. People who did find us through that, may you tag us in something or tag us on Twitter because I don't know who... Or what it is. Yeah, intro us. We'd love to look but them I up think, and like... yeah, that specific name rings a bell. So I feel like someone else was like, I found you through this YouTuber. Yeah, we've had that a few times now. Um, and like a lot of the uh, emails in that we got from True Crime Con are like, hello, I'm a YouTuber. Yeah. Get we in know touch. nothing about this world. Tell us. Educate us. It. Who are the big True Crime YouTubers? Mm-hmm. That would be helpful. Yeah. I don't know. Oh. Great. Well. Great. Great, great. Oh. You guys make oh, us feel guys. so warm and fuzzy. We love you very much. Yeah. Thank you for, and, uh, you know, sorry if uh, <laughs> we're a downer sometimes. <laughs> I still feel the need to apologise for being such a downer, but we just love you and this makes us really happy, so. Yes, it does. Thanks. Um, and if it makes you happy, please shout from the rooftops about us. Would um, Rate, review, subscribe, tweet, Instagram, whatever. I love and Instagram on. and Twitter. W-M. Nothing runs in murder. And Is that a we're <laughs> on Patreon. Uh, nothing runs in murder. Say hell. <laughs> Isn't that how cheerleading works? It just happened, guys. I'm pretty sure I just cheerleaded. I just cheerled. I just cheerled. <laughs> I think I cheerled. I believe then. I cheerled. I believe I just cheerled um, really hard. But as Kate weirdly referenced mm. <laughs> you can reach us on twitter at nrwm podcast same again on facebook nothing i said murder on instagram um patreon as kate has already cheerled <laughs> um you can get merch should you be so inclined uh if you're in the u.s it's nothing rhymes with murder.threadless.com if you're in uh the eu or the uk i guess we're not for long uh-huh. not that if you do want any merch uh you can uh for Fly uk away. and eu it's shop.spreadshirt.co.uk forward slash nothing rhymes with murder and uh uk true crime con this big, huge project that we've taken on. Why did we yeah. do this? We uh, probably won't have announced this yet, but we... But by this point, we'll be confirming venue. Maybe we have a venue and a date. Yes. Um, and so if you are interested in coming along, you can pre-reg yeah. now and it'll give you uh, access to early bird, early bird, early bird tickets. Early bird it's tickets. Uh, UK True Crime Con. Dot com. No, wait, UKTrueCrimeCon.com. U- UKTrueCrimeCon.com. Yeah, so pre-reach now dot to net, show your interest. Um, <laughs> if you're a podcaster or, or any sort of any sort of true crime creator yeah. um, or expert, we'd also love for you guys to get involved. You yeah. can do that on the website too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's all the business for this episode. So remember, kids, life is a journey. Don't let murder stop you. Good day. Okay, bye then for now. So musical today. <laughs> Stamps and coins, yeah. Hurrah.